Hi, Internet. My name is Jonathan Matos. And this is Melissa Machos. And welcome to Unboxing Story, where we talk about uh, narrative from the fringes. Um, today, we're going to get real nerdy because we're discussing guilty pleasures of ours. Uh, the Internet defines guilty pleasures as something such as a movie, television program, or piece of music that one enjoys despite feeling that is not generally held in high regard. Um, now, what's interesting, I think, about uh, the rise of nerd culture is that there are a lot of things that have switched in popularity generationally and used to be you'd get shoved at a locker for <laughs> liking and now it's popular. Um, also, there are things like books and uh, comics, which I didn't really look up any comics specifically, but um, you generally kind of have your taste in this thing um, there's an author, Warren Ellis, I believe, that did a book called Come In Alone. And it was about how when you're a comic book fan, you generally just go in there and find what you dig. And nobody gives you crap for it because um, it's comics and everybody in there has their own, like, you know, nerd, a freak flag that they're flying. Um, so I, I'm going to go through, uh, I think we should alternate with um, movies and TV I think because of the uh, rise of internet commentary, you hear a lot more when a certain thing is lambasted by critics or if your friends have an opinion on it, they'll be like, Star Trek sucks now and it's not my Star Trek. <laughs> so uh, my uh, first TV show was Smallville <laughs> <laughs> because as a, a young adult, I guess, um, that was something that like I watched – only because it was a Superman show and I had some kind of affinity for um, the fact that it was like reaching into my nerd soul and, and giving me like, you know, Zan and, and Z what was Zan and Zed? What are the Wonder Twins names? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Pan and Ping. And there, there was no monkey. I, I don't think anyway, but <laughs> like just knowing that they were on TV was, and I guess that's part of it. Like it was during the rise of comics coming to TV and movies. And so we latched onto anything that was even remotely, you know, sci-fi related or, or stuff that was on TV. I can't defend the quality of that show at all. There was always like 50 love triangles. Um, I think everybody fall, fell in love with Tom Welling at least, <laughs> at least once, once in that show. Whether they were man it's or like, woman, right, whose turn is it this week? Um, <laughs> and uh, one one thing that I always pull because it was the first time I noticed um, product placement on TV was that they were sponsored by Victoria's Secrets, like whatever their Wonder Bra was called at some point. So they always found an excuse to tear a woman's shirt off at any point during the show. Even I, I remember one particularly egregious thing where. Clark had to pull off uh, Chloe's, uh, he had a friend named Chloe, for those of you who were not um, blessed by the show. Uh, and he, in order to cure her of whatever infection she had, he had to hit her right in the breastbone with this antidote. But rather than just, I mean, he has super strength, and I think you can feel where the breastbone is. But no, he had to take her shirt off and, and do that. Well, you don't um, want to push fabric into her chest. 
what the, what the point of the knee? It's still legit. I mean, maybe he didn't have to take her whole shirt off, but he had to at least open her shirt. Right. You make a cut, you know. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so that there was a lot of uh, like funny and, and, and it was like that was the beginning of CW and DC having their, their partnership, um, which I'll mention again on this list later. But uh, what's your what's your first entry? In- so technically mine's kind of a category. Um, it's like the older stranger Disney stuff that Disney doesn't talk about anymore. Oh yeah. So like I used okay. So Atlantis, I have my stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. That nobody remotely does. Nobody talks about Atlantis. Yeah. Or um, <clears throat> like the old movies, like Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea mm-hmm. and stuff. I love those. Right. But, like, you don't see anything about them at all. So uh-huh. at least Disney wants to bury them. I don't know if ever other people want to bury them. Right. But Disney at least is like, nope, we're dropping it. Black Cauldron is another one. Oh, yeah, yeah, I like Black Cauldron. Um, there's a couple that Disney has just decided to drop off the face of the earth. Uh-huh. And I think they were fun. Uh, that was one, that's one category, that's a subcategory I was thinking about, is that when you have a company like Disney that you're a fan of, their output, and they discontinue marketing something. Right. So you don't find merchandise for it. And if you go to Disney World, you only see this stuff for little kids. Right. And you wonder, like, can I find a place that has Darkwing Duck stuff? Right. um, Because, like, Atlantis was, I mean, like we were talking about uh, previously when we were talking about there's a steampunk movie coming out. We don't get very many of those, mm-hmm. but Atlantis was fairly well done. It was a fairly well done animation anyway, uh-huh. but it was a very steampunk, weird, right, sci-fi kind of story. Mm-hmm. It was great, and nobody talks about it. Yeah, <laughs> they just swept that straight under the rug. And you were saying, like, uh, uh, <clears throat> along the lines of Twenty Thousand Leagues, they had a partnership with Miramax for a while that they they discontinued long before the whole Harvey Weinstein thing. Um, but that it is interesting that they don't, that they kind of have changed, switched gears now that they own Star Wars and Marvel. Um, there was a shift and I'm not sure if it was a particular, um, CEO switch or something, but they, um, yeah, they've definitely changed in terms of their branding, not to have like as many, uh, movies for adults that they right. do that are also and I mean Atlantis wasn't even related. necessarily I mean it was PG which was rare for one of their mm-hmm. animated ones um, so so there's a couple like that so Atlantis the Great Mouse Detective is another one mm-hmm. that had some more adult themes to them right. but they weren't I, nobody would consider them like full on adult movies mm-hmm. or anything they were just you know stuff that right had stuff in it that but yeah was that, that kid stuff that in the 90s it was <clears throat> because you would have some stuff that had more like there were more stakes i think yeah and that, it's interesting because it's not necessarily that the movies that would precede them would have like if you think about like oh this is an evil witch who has uh like it's frozen for example there's a snow monster but like a lot of it is played for right. for comedic effect right and so when you get something like Atlantis that uh, if you just took out all the jokes would seem like an adult right. movie, um, it's it's just interesting, yeah. So to yeah, think about. so that's that's one of the stranger, <laughs> older, buried 
Disney movies. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, I know Lost got a lot of um, flag after, especially after the ending. Um, and it's one of my favorite shows. I really liked all the characters that were on it. Um, and I think the major, um, and th- this might be, uh, you know, this is, I, I obviously have a bias and, and everybody that has discussed this online has a bias for the people that, I mean, the bias coming from people that actually like the characters. If you don't like the characters, I can see how if if you're more about the, the world building and getting uh, in a short period, like if like the pacing might have bothered you if you were looking for little things to actually tell, like, for example, even though Colony just got canceled, I thought they did a real good job of in the third season giving you a major piece of information about why the aliens came. And it made me look forward to, which I hope uh, somebody somebody picks that that show up. Um, But they, they pretty obviously the developers or the developers, they're a game studio. The uh, writers, uh, I thought made it a pretty clear decision to uh, not make it like a lost progression and to actually give you a major piece of information um, and not make it like the mystery is always going to be there. Um, but I... Well, I, Lost, I think, did... It would give you information, but it gave you information in a way that made you ask more questions. Uh-huh, right. Instead of just saying, oh, this is going to explain this piece of... No, it's like, oh, we're going to add this in here, too. And you're like, but wait, what does that mm-hmm. even mean? Yeah. <clears throat> but I was, I was hooked all the way through. I've watched it uh, more than once now. And... As a fan of sci-fi, um, I, I heard someone explain their kind of beef with people that are uh, that don't like it by by saying, "When you watch Superman, you don't ask why why can't he fly? Why can he fly at different speeds at different times? Like that's not the point of Superman. The point of Superman is not to know all the different little facts about like what why this is possible. You you." I, and I think that's the major thing is that if you were a hardcore sci-fi fan who were, was expecting hard sci-fi from the show and there to be like a yeah, logical not answer a to everything. It's not hard anything. Yeah, it, it was, it was, uh, you have to, you have to have a healthy dose of, of, of what do they call it? Suspension of disbelief for uh-huh. that show. But if yeah. you are willing to give it the suspension of disbelief, mm-hmm. it's, it's very enjoyable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's my number two. Okay. So my other one, this one is also, Sort of a category, but I'm going to pick one thing to represent it. Uh-huh. So this is a very deep, weird, obscure 80s thing. But <laughs> She's looking liked... at me like she's going to break my head. By... <laughs> I liked deep, obscure, weird 80s things because they did stuff then that no one would try and do now. She's stalling. You know? <laughs> this is going to and... be bad. <laughs> and they did it in a way that they're just like, whatever, we don't care. We're going to put this on TV and it's going to be a thing. So there used to be a show called Beauty and the Beast. And uh, I reserve judgment. <laughs> it was I don't think it holds until up I, now. Until I hear I think I've seen one recently and it was it was Wait, was that Ron Perlman? I don't know. Uh, so wait, go keep going. Keep explaining. So why there was this woman, uh, a young professional woman, um, who found a guy, a, a deformed person. Not really deformed, though. He just looked like the Beast. 
who lived in the gutters in the sewer system under the city that they lived in. And there was like a whole other world down there. And she was trying to teach him about the above world. I don't even remember half the plots because, you know, that's how long ago this was. But it was it was strange. And I mean, they, they dealt with it very seriously. Like it was a regular drama. It wasn't meant to be funny necessarily. There was a point where he started taking care of like street kids. So we had like a whole horde of street kids that like lived with him in the caverns under the city. That was a, that was a weird eighties. Th- I guess there was like a a swath of like runaways during that Possibly. time because there was a lot of stories in cartoons and TV shows that had those plots. I, I don't doubt it. But usually there was like usually that was a bad guy. There would be like a mole man, yeah, that lives in the sewers and all no, the kids. He was trying to keep them from being bad. Yeah, it was a very that one was very. Oh yes, kind so of social justice the guy that mom but... was saying is in Sons of Anarchy. Uh huh. And that was Hellboy was, was the, uh, beast? the beast. I yeah. did not know this. So that's see, he never looks. No, I don't. I can't recognize him because he's always got stuff all over his face. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> so it was very cheesy, and it's old, and it probably doesn't hold up very well. And it's like social justice in the sense of we're just gonna outright say that it's social justice, and we're trying to teach you to be uh-huh. nicer to poor people. But there you go. Yep. <laughs> well, on the same note. Um, I put Flash and Impulse and Runaways in the same category because it it in one sense and this this is another kind of guilty pleasure thing is when you like something that is not written for you and those shows are written for teenagers or preteens and and I think what happens is that specifically in our generation when any, everything is accessible to us and when I, you know, I still have friends that will tweet about um, Arrow and Walking Dead and like stuff from so I have, you know, nerdy friends. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I'm still in the loop. So when there's something that intrigues me, like um, like Impulse, uh, you know, I I'm on YouTube, so I would always see ads for that. So I saw one that was uh, intriguing, and um, I think that that kind of um, elevates the YA, uh, you know, that that whole su- superhero dark thing. thing. And so it's funny because the, um, the pendulum has swung s- so fast different ways because there was Arrow that was super quote-unquote dark and gritty and then Flash that was just unapologetically... Like, they had King Shark on that show. Right, and they just didn't care. And it and just the, didn't matter. The, the genius gorilla, or whatever that nonsense was. Right, yeah. <laughs> who can A telepathic gorilla uh, who is directly from but the But at least Flash well. didn't really take itself very seriously all the time. Uh, but then, I think, as, as opposed to Arrow, that was, I think, be, being real try-hard and, like, not... Wasn't actually dark already. It was just kind of filmed that way and... Um, copping off of the uh, different tropes of, like, the Dark Knight with, like, the speechifying of, you know, this is my city and yada yada. I think Impulse actually deals with something that is dark, but shows conversely, like, they act like normal teenagers when it calls for it. So, um, like, I, I think that's really, you know, 
a, a series that I think that you're from teenager up can actually enjoy watching. Um, Runaways I I watched because I read the comics when I was that was like a reboot thing um, from a comic that came out in the two thousands and it was it was trying to uh, make it a, an ensemble thing a la Heroes Are Lost and a lot was I think lost in the trying to humanize the parent characters that were uh, I mean I I talked about this if you want to know more about our opinions on YA superhero stuff. We did a whole episode on that, uh, but it's definitely a genre that, you know, you, I'm not like tweeting like, Oh, uh, LOL loved <laughs> flash. And then 50 lightning strikes, because I'm not, you know, you don't get credit from your adult, <laughs> uh, yuppie, you know, friends for liking a show that's here towards teenagers. So that's my number three. All right. So now we're going to start getting into most of most of the ones I have on this list. I think it's because to me, I consider these movies like guy movies. Uh huh. Like they're not things that I, as a female, should like. Okay. Which I guess I could have included stuff like Hunt for Red October and whatnot too, but those are considered in higher regard just as oh, yeah, action yeah. movies. But okay, so Sucker Punch. Mm hmm. I really liked that movie. Right. And every person I tell that to looks at me like I'm psychotic. Uh -huh. I'm like, but I, I get it. Like, why don't you understand what this movie is about? That's uh -huh. what I keep wanting to tell people. Like, don't you understand what this is about? Uh -huh. And everybody just looks at me like I'm crazy. Right. But besides the fact that it is fun to watch females kick butt, because at the time we didn't have. Well, I'm going to join you on this because mine is Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> As fun as it is to watch females kick butt, which they did a lot in that movie. Uh, the point also was it was it was the main character's way of dealing with the horribleness of her life, right? She had this like escapist fantasy that when something horrible was about to happen, mm -hmm. she would go into this other realm of hers in her mind and kick butt and then would actually succeed at something in real life. Uh-huh. Right? It wasn't like Obviously, she wasn't kicking butt in real life the same way, but she was doing something in her real life to help her get out of whatever the terrible situation was. Right. <clears throat> and I thought that was a really neat way of showing it. Plus, chicks and mechs. What else do I need to say, right? <laughs> well, I, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback off of your um, pick with that by, by... I think a lot of the animosity towards... Zack Snyder, who directed that movie, comes from how he's handled Batman and Superman. And so I think it might be also misplaced aggression towards you taking characters that are supposed to be actually noble and like have a higher form of storytelling behind them than just escapism and power fantasy. And he put that on them. But when you're dealing with that the story that you're talking about, um, like I get that that's what that is doing. Right. And you either like that or you don't. I don't think that's a comment on that. You should never have a story like that. It's just that what, that's what that is. And you can have a chip in your shoulder that that exists or not. <laughs> or not. <laughs> um, and so that, that's how I feel now. <laughs> that That's what's funny about Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is that it's trying to 
do a pastiche of a thing that is well established and um you know beloved in a certain iteration and what's interesting to me is that it is uh trying to on some level tell the same story and equivocate strengthen a woman to her ability to fight and um like it, it and not not to say that it's not doing some tropey things and some wings at the audience and it's not like um completely like i'm not saying like this is the new way to tell these stories but um i i i i just really enjoy watching that movie and i think that the actors also do something to elevate the thing like lily james and uh whoever plays um darcy i think that they are uh good in the roles even if they're not um, I was gonna say Clive Owen. That's not, <laughs> not the guy that plays Darcy. No, I don't know who it was that played Darcy. I just like Matt Smith as Collins. Yeah, yeah, he does a good job, and those those uh, he's a good comic relief character. So anyway, swings swings back to you. Okay, so my next one is Priest. Yes. Which I think generally most people will admit to liking it and will call it their guilty pleasure because we're all willing to admit that this is not some high, well-written, mm-hmm. beautiful, dramatic movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is an excuse to have a Western and vampires and and priests beating up stuff mm-hmm. just because. <laughs> like, that is all this is. There really is no... No excuse for any of any of the movie. <laughs> uh, what's interesting to me about the those um, because I, I know you also have Underworld on there, but when I watch those types of movies, it's interesting because of how much zombie stuff has taken over. Yeah, uh, and how they're on the fringes of sci-fi and the fringes of these different things. You have you still have like. Werewolf, vampire, yeah, still the classic stuff. monster um, tropes are there, and so there's like these subtle differences between them, but they they do still have like the industrial rock. Um, <laughs> yes, it's all very post-apocalyptic. I don't care what it's set; it all feels post-apocalyptic. It's mm-hmm. all very gritty, and everybody's dirty, and everybody knows. Yeah, how it, 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 <clears throat> they they both have like the the matrix. Like wardrobe stuff. Yes. <laughs> they. Although this one, Priest was a little more Wild West than, than that. Right, and so that I, it seems like that's somewhat of an influence from Walking Dead because the beginning <laughs> arc of that is very much like, um, what's his name? Uh, Rick Grimes is a like a U.S. Marshal or something, so he has a cowboy hat. So a lot of that seems like it's trying to draw that in put the western influence on top of it and it does um uh it 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 takes away some of like the there's no like um and this guy has a crossbow which they did for the show uh uh, but the, the comics are a little bit more uh subtle in certain ways but like each one of them kind of has their power fantasy thing and their like guilty pleasure like parts to it um, but they plus, all plus I think that one has more. I like the actors, uh-huh. so like Paul Bettany and Carl Urban, and who's the chick? I forget the chick's name. Oh, um, I'll look it up. But 
it's the kind of thing where there are certain actors who can pull off roles, even if the movie's terrible, it's still a joy to watch them. And those are some of those types of actors. <clears throat> so I, I enjoy it probably because of that as well. Um, Paul Bettany as a... Oh, as Maggie a, Q. Maggie Q. Uh, Paul Bettany as a, as a depressed social outcast vampire mm-hmm. fighting priest is is just fun. <laughs> so sometimes I, I like things just for fun and I don't care that they're terrible. Well, uh, to, to kind of put it in the, in the, the critical landscape a little bit, the, uh, Stephen King has a whole uh, part of this, his book, the, the Dance Macabre, and he talks about the different types of... Um, it's almost like Pathos, Ethos, and Logos for horror is that you have the grotesque, the horror, and the terror, and a lot of these the the they're not really they're not really suspenseful in the way that you'll get from like a Hitchcock thing. They're not really um, horror movies because they're not building up uh, tension or you know it's really just this the grossness of the different stuff that's happening. Mm-hmm. And so in, in terms of like, is this going to stick in your memory as like, oh, this was a really scary thing that happened. It's not really working on that level. It's no. more of like a superhero movie yeah. where it's like, I love seeing uh, Celine blow up a bunch of uh, werewolves. And, yes. And that's it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, Oh, so I I'm uh, M Night Shyamalan biologist. Aha! I didn't think about that one. <laughs> um, my the one that I have on here is The Village. Yes. Because I, I feel like that's village. a good case study for the things that um, I've heard that are critical of um, Shyamalan that I understand versus what I'm still willing to cling to as like a strength of his writing and. Um, I, I think that he does um, have a good grasp on creating characters that you are uh, you see as very noble and and they're they're like very charming characters um, and specifically in that movie um, you have these very innocent main characters who have very simple problems mm-hmm. and um, the, the the movie gets billed as this horror thing yeah and it turns out to just be a drama that has some kind of like horror elements in it and um a a lot of like i remember my english teacher at the time saying once i knew that uh spoiler alert for the village if you haven't seen it skip a minute if you want to see this movie because you should um she she found out what they were costumes and she couldn't stop thinking of Scooby-Doo. Yeah. And so at the time I was like, I can understand if you're looking at these movies for the face value, like you, if you want them to be to the level of something like a Hitchcock thing, I can see you being disappointed. And, and for their, for if you're not into the characters, if you're, if you're looking for something where, um, there's a little bit more of a complex thing going on. Right. Or, um, or if you, for some reason, 
the way they bill him, the way they advertise his movies. Uh huh. Yeah, that's another thing think I think. They're horror I can movies, understand. and people go to them expecting these slasher horror type movies, and they're not. Mm-hmm. And I don't um, know why they advertise them that way. And then there's an, there's another thing that like because of how popular uh, Lovecraftian stuff is now. If you were like uh, me trying to read the Southern Reach trilogy was kind of hard because I'm I'm always uh, looking for something that names that calls out evil's name and is saying like we we can defeat this thing and the characters learn and grow and and defeat it through some kind of means and uh, what that movie I think does very well is that it's like the the it sets up this. Um, this cautionary tale, and even though it's still horrifying to think about what happens in that movie, and I think dramatically it works in the the thing. If you are the type of person that needs to have this unnamed thing and and have there be this unease that keeps you up at night, <laughs> and like it seems like in the Southern Reach trilogy, a lot of the thing is that these characters can't come to grips with what is terrorizing them. And uh, a lot of it is, um, it, it, it comes across to me as um, horror for the sake of itself or, or this, this nameless um, thing that, that from movie to movie almost seems to um, stands to me for like a nihilistic attitude. Um, But I, I look for horror where, there is a, a beginning, middle, end. There, there is a story that uh, is complete because uh, evil is called out for what it is and then uh, defeated somehow. But there is some kind of like I think the stuff that lives on in my mind is when the the author does the work to come up with the most compelling version of what evil yeah. is and something that does make you doubt whether the the characters can come out in the end. But then it's that much more cathartic when they are able to defeat uh, what you know, whatever evil is in that story. Uh, and I think and that Jalalan does a good job of that. So the village, I can't defend the happening, but <laughs> uh, I don't think that was his fault though. <laughs> Entirely, it was weird. Sure enough, I, I don't know what to do with that one. But the rest <laughs> of them I have thoroughly enjoyed. Yes. All right. So you already talked about Underworld for me because I guess that's in the same. Category. I put it in the same category. But I'm sure, we'll get comments. So there. I'm technically done with the movies. <laughs> okay, so I have I have a couple more. Um, uh, the Last Jedi was a big one, um, where a lot of people were. Uh, it, it's funny. It seems like there were people on both sides that like were upset that that the Force Awakens was kind of like. Uh, one of the older movies, and we're complaining, and they were like, we want something new. Yeah, and then they gave they them got something new, and something they still new. complained. Right. <laughs> I just think the Star Wars fandom has gotten very weirdly toxic, and I'm not sure why. Uh-huh. I don't know what's happened there, but they're all of a sudden horrible people. <laughs> but I think that that's a little bit of a window for you into what the, the rest of the internet has become, is that when you have something that doesn't line up with your what you specifically want, you get something like a uh, petition that they actually did <laughs> where they're trying to get them to remake the movie. Um, but I, for, for my purposes, um, the arc of Kylo Ren and, and 
Ray continues to be compelling, uh, even if it you, I think it's arguable whether they knew what they, what they wanted to do with Snoke, um, and the storyline with um, Finn and and Rose aside, like that scene with them uh, fighting the uh, the Imperial Guard that Snoke had and that emotional moment where she uh, is finally validated by somebody, but then rejects like that, that, that not only has that, was that a cool moment? It actually helped me as a writer because I I was watching a video that was kind of explaining um, like what the writing was doing in that movie. And it showed how you, you need this character to have something change and then show the impact of that in the story and um, the fact that that character always wanted to have some kind of outside validation. She didn't get it from Luke and she thought, you know, maybe Ray can, maybe, um, sorry, uh, Kylo Ren can train me. And then she ends up realizing that, you know, she has to define for herself her own path. Identity and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a really powerful thing, and, and like I said, um, I think can teach a lot of, of in the, the uh, storytelling um, that it was doing. So uh, you know, I really liked the movie. Like uh, like Melissa said, it it was kind of weird the level of, of outrage that um, spawned from it. I hope that that can change, um, and that uh, you know, if you don't like something, that you can just find something that you like. Yeah, and not uh, bother the people that do like not it. Have to, I mean, like, it's fine if you're going to say, oh, I don't like this. You don't have to, like, rage about it and, and mm. insult people online for it and, like, make actors delete their Twitter's accounts and whatnot. That's yeah. just messed up. Yeah. <clears throat> so don't do that. No trolling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stop the nonsense. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah, so, um, hey, I, I'll just rattle some of these off, because there, there's, I guess I would put uh, Independence Day and Con Air in the same uh-huh. category, just, like, 90s movies that are very schmaltzy, uh, in their, like, they're very emotionally manipulative, and um, just, like, just visceral action stuff that, you know, every uh, 10-year-old boy from the 90s remembers and celebrates, but then when they're in English class and they're learning about King Lear, <laughs> they're like, like no, no yeah. that wasn't really doing as much as I thought it was doing. Um, not and, crap, but they're, they're not, they're just not high literature. It's yeah. fine. They don't have to be, they're not trying to uh, be. That's, that's, but yeah. it's those gateway things that get you into liking stories. Yeah. And then you, you think about it later and you realize that you see, you start seeing the, the, nuances of the things. ghost in the machine and you see like, Oh, you know, they made this character uh, miss his daughter and have her her buddy, you know, because that's going to make you care about the uh, Nicolas Cage with a weird hair. hair. <laughs> I don't know what was going on there, but um, uh, so. Oh, and then I guess the, in the same category, I could put um, Ghost Rider and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I was another. thinking of putting the turtles on my list. Yeah, because. The, but those, I think, are very specific because they're both based on comics. And the comics were very, like, weird, hardcore, you know, this is metal. Because the 
for those of you who, who aren't um, aware, the original Ninja Turtles were based on the Daredevil comics of the uh, 80s, where uh, a lot of it was influenced by like ninjutsu and the um, these kind of like honor-based stories. And it was kind of parodying it, but it was doing it in such a way that was a lot more subtle, where it was like, isn't it funny that this is playing this straight and that they're defending the honor of their rat father. <laughs> um, but then the cartoons were very much just like, isn't it funny that they're in a uh, sewer and that they eat pizza and skateboard and yeah. all that's like just pouring oh, all yeah. the nineties like into one cartoon. Um, so yeah. So, uh, and then bring it on because we watched that in, school sometimes. My English teacher, I remember. Is that the dance on, movie? It, it's a cheerleader movie. Cheerleaders, okay. Um, but it's it alright, I like Pitch Perfect, so there you go. Back but yeah, it's, it's one of the, that, it's one of the, like, I, I, th- and I think everybody that is a nerd that doesn't, that gravitates more towards like power fantasy stories or uh, any type of like fantasy thing, when there is a witty, well-written like, uh, teen comedy or something, you just kind of watch that and hope that nobody is like right. wants to hang out that day <laughs> because you have to say, Hey, I'm, I'm watching, I'm watching bring it on. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Just, just go with it. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't judge me. <laughs> All right. So I, I'm going to move on to games. Some of these, I think I, I could, um, because it, with that, a lot, a lot of mine, their video games are a lot more visceral experience experiences. One of them has to do with the, the actual story of the um of the the thing but um battlefront and um uh, star wars bounty hunter are kind of two games bounty hunter was back in the early 2000s that came out that was like a, a boba fett game um and battlefront have all been uh kind of commented on as not being like revolutionary in the in the gameplay sphere, they're not like um, they're not changing the wheel, changing the wheel, <laughs> reinventing the wheel. Yeah, they're not changing. They're not changing tires either. Anybody's changed wheels because in a long it's time hover, time. they're hovercrafts. They don't have to. That's a bad joke. Um, <laughs> my point is that uh, they weren't really revolutionary, and uh, I guess I'll, I'll put all three of these together: Modern Warfare Three, Two, uh, because um, I had been away from shooters for a while and then I got Modern Warfare 3 and that was after like six iterations of Call of Duty and so a lot of people were talking about how tired they were of Call of Duty but um, it it was new to me so I was really hype about it and was like this is really cool um, but they're um, whenever there is a, a type of game that you're uh, enthused about and you like the gameplay loop and uh, you know I'm personally not that big of a gamer you might get see like people crap on your game and so uh, as the game of Penny Arcade says you go to try to find people that agree with you and then live in this small bubble of people that are actually <laughs> so excited to play the game that you like um, but yeah I, I guess I'll put all those shooters in one one category. So I don't have very many things in this list because mm-hmm. I'm not a huge 
video gamer anyway. <clears throat> um, but I have, let's see, I think it was for Super Nintendo. I think mm-hmm. it was for Super Nintendo. Um, there was an Aladdin game. Uh-huh. It was the only game other than like Mario that I've actually played to the end. Like, I, I never finish video games, like, very, very rarely. Uh-huh. But that one I played to the end and actually beat several times. Uh-huh. That's how much I enjoyed playing it. Yeah, I, th- I liked that game, too. It was fun. It was different, you know, than the regular stuff. Mm-hmm. He could he could jump around, and there was, like, parts you could climb up onto the walls and do mm-hmm. things. and I don't know. And I loved Aladdin as a movie, uh-huh. so it was a lot of fun to be the, the characters. So yeah, that was that's fun. <laughs> yeah, and a lot, a lot of uh, you can tell how old of a video gamer I am. <laughs> well, the a lot of those are they're like I think that the classic video game enthusiasts are such that like you'll find videos of them playing the, through them again, but because it's not because gaming is not yet um, for the most part elevated to high art, it you don't get as many people that are like. This is what's wrong with video games. Right. Or, I'm glad, so glad that it's not like this anymore. You get a lot more people that are en- enthusiastic about the nostalgia of, of a certain thing, and or they'll just like have fun playing through it again because they're not, you know, games aren't like that anymore. Right. Um, so next on my thing is uh, Lego Island. That was <laughs> Look, that was something that Lego I played does a lot. Is fun, their movies are hilarious. The cartoons are hilarious. Yeah, there, there is a certain for those thing. like I I think that there have been a couple of videos that are making fun of how corny some of the things are. My sister's gonna go fly down the bird if you can hear that in the background. But uh, for those of you listening, the Lego games uh, always had a very specific type of brand of humor, and it's still evident in that game, even though it was before the Lego movie came out. Um, it's always had this very charming brand and they've done a lot to kind of keep that going and to try to cement their place like you're not going to see a mega blocks um game that actually has personality so uh like it's it was always fun to play lego games even when they were um you know they didn't have the graphical fidelity that they have now and i'm sure that they've improved upon uh like i've seen adults play like lego harry potter and stuff like that so it's definitely like a certain level of success that they've had in the video game sphere. Um, but I know like delivering pizzas and like, there's a lot of just like terribly nineties things about that, that um, survived even into the early 2000s that where it was pro- it probably came out. Um, yeah. I, I have one more, but do you have anything? Yes. So this was an app. Uh-huh. I hope that counts. It's called Plague Incorporated. Okay. Where you literally are designing diseases to destroy the world. Oh. <clears throat> it's a horrible, horrible thing to do. <laughs> but it's so much fun to try and figure out, okay, well, if I do it, these symptoms, that'll kill everybody too fast and it won't spread. If I do this, it won't spread enough. And I have to spread it fast enough, but not kill everybody as it spreads so that it actually gets the entire, because you have to kill the entire population of the world. It's not right. just parts of it. Yeah, that would because that would be terrible for you were like um bragging about genocide on Facebook. Yes. It would just like, sound terrible. It's like, yes, I destroyed the world again. Oh. 
uh, <laughs> and you have to stop people from killing no, I think things. That's what I'm like, saying. It's not. It's not the world. Like if you were to brag about killing. Oh yeah, no, I, race, I killed China. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> like, no, really, it's it's a game. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> Don't call any hotlines, please. <laughs> That's pretty and then, funny. Is that all you have for games? I have one more. Oh yeah, so I have. Um, uh, there, there was one specific criti- criticism for Bioshock Infinite because even though that was very popular, like it's not, it was not derided. It was elevated, I think, by a lot of um, critics and and um, just regular like internet commentators. But there was a specific thing about uh, what they called Ludo narrative dissonance. In fact, I think it was invented to talk about the game, which is why and among a certain amount of critics there was like sharing this idea. Um, but it, it, that was another thing where like the critique actually helped me uh, in, in, you know, learning about game gameplay and what it takes to write a game because their whole point was that it's a very thought provoking story. But then when the main character is mowing down thousands of characters, uh, there's this dissonance between what the character is actually doing and the, um, the moral like of the story and, and put like aligning those things together. And so, you know, critics of it were basically saying that if you're creating a game and you're trying to, t- you need to tie the gameplay loop somehow into the story that you're trying to tell. And it, it makes it difficult when there are those accepted genres that you're having to deal with and make it marketable to the um, general populace um, and yeah it was just an interesting thing too and that was another thing where like the discussion was very civil it wasn't like toxic or anything it was mostly people that are very educated and very good at doing critique that were you know making this argument about it and trying to kind of add to the conversation of game design and what's good and what's bad um, so yeah so I, I think that game was really like I think it survived that, and I think that you, I was able to suspend my disbelief and kind of go along with the gameplay loop, and then watch the cutscenes as if they were like a movie, and get the story elements from it, even though I could agree with that, like criticism of it. Okay, so this one I have to go into a little background on uh, for those of you that are not big role playing gamers. <clears throat> so. Among role-playing games, there are levels of what they call crunchiness, right? Mm. The more crunchy a game, the more numbers and statistics they assign to everything in the game. So, and then of course there are the systems that are just sort of the crowning glory of each of the the role-playing game universe, right? Mm. So right now Dungeons & Dragons can do no wrong. It's like the ruler of, and it, it should be, it started them all. But um, going up from there, there are systems like Shadowrun or Traveler or other things that get very, very detailed and everything's a number and everything you have to roll dice for and blah, blah. It gets very complicated. There are a lot of rules. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And to me, that interrupts the story. Uh Which, generally though, if you're in for one of these games, then you understand that that's going to happen. And some of the fun is making your character the right way so that it can utilize all these statistics. Mm -hmm. But like I said, it does throw off your narrative. Right. 
So a lot of people have come up with uh, more freeform versions of role-playing, like Fate or Powered by the Apocalypse or some other systems that are not as intrusive onto your story, um, which are cool, and I love that very much. But the one at the very bottom end of this <laughs> that has, like, almost no rules at all mm-hmm. is Fiasco. So most people that you try to talk to role-playing games about think Fiasco is a joke. They're like, that's not even a game. Like, why are uh-huh. you even talking to me about this? <laughs> right. Because most role-playing people are very much into the other end of the spectrum. Mm. Most non-role-playing game people are people that think that role-playing games are nothing but fantasy stories with a lot of dice. Mm. Love Fiasco because it's not fantasy generally. Mm. It's modern-day settings or, you know, other random settings. And it's very freeform. And it's basically you become a character. It sets up the relationships between you and the other people at the table. And then you play through scenes. So it's almost like straight improv acting. Right. And, but in a way that still compels the people at the table to do their part. It's not like, you know, you have to be the way proactive. That you, in the, the way that you pitch this to me is like, uh, playing in Coen Brothers. Yes. Because of the way the stories work, it ends up that there's like a twist in the middle. And usually whoever is the most sleazebaggy person is the one who survives and gets away at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, not always. I haven't played through the Fargo setting, but they have one mm-hmm. um, and, and several others that are very reminiscent of Coen Brothers movies. Um, but it's a lot of fun. It's great for people that, that don't know things like Dungeons and Dragons, that, so you don't have to explain a whole bunch of things to them. Mm-hmm. It's just here. This is the character you're playing. Here's how a scene works. Let's do this. Very simple to get into mm-hmm. and a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, th- th- there's a similar argument that we talked about um, a few episodes, quite a few episodes ago, uh, when we we, we did a first, um, I think it was Game versus Story, if you want to listen to that episode, um, but uh, Total Biscuit, who has since left us, uh, is, he was a King commentator, and uh, he had a like, very thoughtful critique about, about a new cropping of games that were coming up. Um, that were visual narratives, or they call them visual novels. And so, uh, what? As somebody that likes gaming for the story, he was trying to get into the conversation: Are these really games anymore? And so, um, it, it's it's an interesting thing when you have friends who enjoy games for the story versus people that enjoy games for the sense of accomplishment that gives right. them because they've overcome some kind of challenge. And what's interesting is I think that if you have a fully um, developed story, you can, like, uh, we've been praising the uh, the um, uh, writer Tycho, uh, a.k.a. Jerry Hawkins from Veneer Cade, who's been doing um, the C-Team, uh, which is a spinoff of their acquisitions um it's a long story, but <laughs> it's good. It's got a yeah. really, really good story. He, he started doing a playthrough um, of D and D that is very infused with the type of humor that comes from the Penny Arcade comic, but is also allows for very dramatic uh, moments and and very compelling gameplay and da- like danger that they overcome in in the same way that you would see in a very well written fantasy story 
And it's interesting to me how, because of his um, investment in creating a good story for the people listening to it or watching on Twitch, uh, you you do get the best of both worlds. They're able to play and have have fun and you know be jokey, um, but they also get very good story moments and good moments of gameplay in there. So I think that you can have both, even no matter what. At least from an outsider looking into RPG, it depends on who's running it. Yeah. It depends so much on your GM. Your GM can do that, can make it about story as well. And your characters, like if your characters are very proactive characters, players, I mean, <clears throat> you can make it a lot more about that. And and it's just, you know, you get worried about having some people who like to break down into arguments about the rules, <laughs> which is really, I think, what throws things off. It's like, oh, but then I can do this and this and this. And it's just like, you're just trying to find ways to break the game. Mm-hmm. You're not like just enjoying the story of this. So the next thing we're going to go through is some of our uh, guilty pleasure books. Um and it, it seems like when I was uh, brainstorming through it, it that there are um, specific authors that have a bad rap for different reasons. And it's more like the author is being denigrated some, somehow or or has lost favor in public opinion. With the first being Kipling, um, I am a big fan of the original Jungle Book. By saying that, I mean that Disney did not write the Jungle Book. It was adapted from a book um, that Roger Kipling wrote. And um, I I think that as a piece of literature, um, at, mostly to, to read as a cautionary thing, if you believe that Kipling was actually serious when he wrote uh, White Man's Burden, or um, reading it as a piece of satire, which growing up I always assumed that it was. Uh, and then um, I, I also watched the um, adaptation of um, the man who would be king with Michael Caine and Sean Connery. I think it is. Yeah, I think so. And so, uh, you know, you, you, you look at that with a different pair of glasses as well um, versus when you, if you might've seen it uh, growing up, you might've had more sympathy for these kind of like imperialist characters um, but the, um, the storytelling in those things, I think, uh, wor- works on a level that transcends, the uh, um, accusations of him and, and his, and his own character. Um, and, uh, I think that the, um, accusations or the, the comments that I've heard of Jungle Book being a, like, culturally appropriated from, um, uh, a like a, a maid or a, a a nurse like someone who nursed him um like the value of those stories i think transcends um any dilution i kind of don't think that's fair anyway like i can understand if you were criticizing an author now for doing that kind of stuff mm-hmm. but the you can't take a person out of the time they were born mm-hmm. you know what i mean and for him to be writing those things at the time he was born, the time when he was writing, was actually a lot further... I mean, it was a lot less horrible than a lot of the other stuff that was getting written at the time. Like, I don't consider him one of the more bigoted writers. of the. Uh-huh. Certainly not as bad as, like, Tarzan or 
other things that I could point out. Well, and I, are, I think well, the, the, the credence that I give it is because I think what I've heard is more that when you read some of the answers, if you, if you aren't, if you are less <clears throat> ignorant than I am and you have read other things that are more egregious, that I could understand seeing, seeing those things in a different light. And I think that from, from what I've heard, there are letters that he, that he wrote that might, that are, are um, uh, you know, that just depict that, that, that mindset at the time of that this place is a property of England and, right. and all that stuff. But, but that's how everyone thought then. There were very, very few people who didn't think that then. And it's, it's unfair. Not that I'm saying it wasn't wrong to mm-hmm. treat another country that way. But at the same time, if you are raised in a culture that teaches you that country belongs to us, that's how you're going to think. Well, I think that's easy for us to say, not being Indian. <laughs> True. Like, I think that in America, we're not as um, forgiving of like the South being that way because we are right, but at the same more time, affected so like, by... So there's a difference between, and, and even there were writers in America at the time who, who talked about stuff like the South. So like if you read Huckleberry Finn, Huck Finn himself, the character, is a horrible racist person. Uh-huh. But Mark Twain is trying to make the point of he is an ignorant kid who has no other point of reference for this at all. Like, he has no idea that there is anything else out there. And I'm not saying Rudyard Kipling didn't, because he was a lot more educated, I think, than, than the average Joe. Mm. But you, it, it's just not fair. It's not fair to take a person out of their time. You mm. didn't live then. You weren't raised by British imperialists. <laughs> you have no idea what that's like. Uh-huh. And you don't know if you would have made any better choice than he did. You know mm. what I mean? Like, yeah, no, I, I we, think we, that we the, can sit here and look back at it and say, oh, well, we're more morally better than that, and we wouldn't have done what they did. You don't know that. Mm-hmm. No, I think that I think that's fair. I think that the um, the um, as opposed to as opposed to Lewis Carroll, who was now fairly well known, was a pedophile, mm-hmm. which even at the time was not considered right. Mm-hmm. And mostly wrote his books high on drugs. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, so you're going to tell me that it's okay for him to be what he was. Uh-huh. But people who were raised in, in a solid block imperialist culture who had no other viewpoint around them. Like, uh-huh. I don't know. It just bothers me. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that I, d- I don't um, want to make a straw man out, out of Sorry, people. I didn't mean to rant so much quite <laughs> about that, but that bugs me. It's not, it's not a... Um, a thing that I, I I I don't readily accept virtue signaling based on it, like saying that that aren't we enlightened to not I mean, think like I, that? Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, at um, the same time, you look back and you say, okay, that was wrong, but it's not our place to sit in judgment of uh-huh. of an individual mm-hmm. like that. Right. I th- th- that, I, there's, a, there's a difference between saying I can understand somebody not liking something for their own specific moral high force reason, I, d- I don't have to agree with it. Right. I think is yeah. our, is our stance. Yeah. Is that you don't, um, I don't, I don't read to sit in judgment of the author that I'm reading. I read in order to learn, um, what this place in time was like, what this person's perspective was. And then, uh, I, I, reserve the 
um, you know, I, I reserve uh, the right to be ignorant to whether or not this person was doing this um, seriously, like as in the case of white man's burden, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of rhetoric in there that's questionable. Uh, I have the right to take that in, in what way that I will, because um, it, it's, it's, um, you know, the, the authorial intent is not my responsibility right. to divine. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's an interesting, uh, uh, I think to read his writing specifically because as Bellis said, he, he is the type of person that isn't known for like, you know, like at being like Thomas Jefferson and, and impregnating his, you know, Indian mistress. Like right. there's not any things that you can put on a, a, on a nail to a wall and say, these are the sins of Rudyard Kipling. So you can take your, uh, you can either take it as somebody trying to keep the mythology of a culture alive. You can take it as somebody that was um, meddling with things and using things and appropriating things. You can take it whichever way you come to it. But then as you learn more about different things that he did and, and, and the time and, you know, and you give it that context of um, somebody that is in a culture and, time when this was acceptable and when you um, you were occupying a nation that that had a culture different from your own um, it, it gives a lot more um, nuance to it and you you know um, I, I still I very much enjoy those stories and um, I think it's kind of cool that uh, you know Disney even after all these years is still, and, and we're still seeing these big blockbuster stories of some woman that we may never, you know, w- w- right. I, most people don't even know her name. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, that's that's something. And I'm still holding out for uh, the ending of the Jungle Book where he leaves with the wolves. Sorry, the way it's supposed to end. Which, which and none of the adaptations <clears throat> have ever ended that way. Um, but I, I will know because I actually read the original version from Kipling. Um, so that's my my number one on the list. I don't have anything nearly as controversial as this <laughs> on my list at all. Mine's all very fluffy stuff. I think that's why I picked mine is because to me, as far as books go, even if someone looks at Roger Kipling or Lewis Carroll and says they were horrible people doing horrible things at, <laughs> at this time, no one can deny that they wrote very well. Uh-huh. That this is considered high literature, classic literature, and that it is still taught even though these people were not exactly paragons of morality or whatever, <laughs> or paragons of what we considered high, so, you know, so, so, socially just. Yeah. Um, most of the stuff I picked, I picked because it is not considered high literature in any way, shape or form. <laughs> um, it is stuff that I read. We call them fluffy stories or, or, or bubblegums. I don't know what you want to call it. <laughs> just easy, fast reads uh-huh. to take to the beach. Whatever. Yeah, I, that's what I hear most of is um, somebody was describing Odd Thomas by Dean Koontz, and he, he was saying it's what you buy at the airport yeah, so that you can read it on the way there, right. and you'll probably read it, if not on the way there, by, by the time you're done with your vacation. Right. So the bottom of my list, I have um, something called the Firebird series. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was younger, I read a lot of Bethany House stuff. You can judge me if you want to. 
but um but what you're supposed to say is don't at me don't at you, me. have you heard that no when you're defending your thing and you're on the internet you say don't at me because on twitter you can oh, put yeah, the ad yeah. symbol and so don't at her please i don't know what the state of christian fiction is now i haven't sought it out in a while mm. i tweeted about this the other day but at the time okay. it was very Picture aisles and aisles of covers of blonde women in fields of wheat. Yes, that's basically what it was. Um, so when I was really younger, somebody had me read the, um, oh, what was it called now? It was like a huge one at the time. Anne Green Gables? No, but it was about like that level. <laughs> it, was a, it was just a fluffy romance uh-huh. series. Um, I had two different ones that I had read. So I got into reading Bethany House. And so basically it's like, you know, Fluffy, light, very moral Christian writing stuff. Mm-hmm. But when I hit, was it college? Maybe right before college, uh-huh. they started trying to do science fiction stories, uh-huh. which I don't think ever really took off. I should try and check back to see if they did more. Mm. But the first ones they released were the Firebird series, and it was actually Kathy Tyre. She wrote for Star Wars officially, okay. previously, um, and then started writing for these guys. So it's kind of sort of Jedi. So she did Star Wars novels. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, not the movie. Sorry, she wrote for she wrote Star Wars novels previously. So they're kind of sort of Jedi's, but it's a much stronger Judeo-Christian mythology to them, uh-huh. where they're like God's chosen people, hmm. and they're exiled because they had actually genetically engineered themselves to be to have mental powers. Oh, okay. So they were exiled for that. So hmm. they're kind of scattered across the galaxy. And uh, there's this one girl from this planet that's supposed to be killing herself or, or fighting off, fighting, sacrificing herself in a war. And she meets the main guy. And it's mostly romance, but it is an interesting science fiction story, too. But very fluffy still. And somewhat didactic, because that's uh-huh. what Bethany House did. And, but it was one of the few books that I actually reread. Now and then, mm-hmm. I don't do that ever. There's like two books, three books maybe in the right. history of the universe that I have ever actually read again on purpose. Uh-huh. And that's one of them. I think probably the only thing that I've consumed like that is the Book of Eli. It's a really cool, like, this guy is protecting the Bible from horrible, like, hills have eyes, like, um, bad guys. And it's kind of fun. I thought it wasn't the Bible. Or did they only do that in the movie? I thought it was the Wizard of Oz. What are you talking about? I thought that's how it ended. Like, everybody through the whole thing thinks he's got a Bible, but at the end it's like a copy of the Wizard of Oz. Because he was following the the Yellow Brick Road the whole time, and, like, it's this thing. I think you're matching up two things in your mind, because that's not in the movie. No? Well, I never got to the end of the movie, because I got sick of the rape scenes, so I don't know how it ended. It's very difficult to watch as a woman, I think. Yeah, it sucked. um, I was like, they did it one more time, and I couldn't handle it. It was like the fifth one in, and I'm like, no, I'm done. Yeah, but that's... Yeah, no, they, there was not a... That would be a weird O'Henry... Kind of ending. ending. <laughs> it turns out... Okay, I need to find out... We're going to find out what that is and tweet about it after. Um, so the... Um, I, I put down Bra- um, Ray Bradbury not because there's any... Well, what brought him to mind was that um, I was at a church drive one time and uh, a church food drive and a friend of mine who was also into sci-fi found somebody that was 
into sci-fi novels, and neither of us were big. We were more comic book fans than we were book, you know, novel fans. Um, so it was interesting to talk about to him about uh, his taste and what he liked. And I remember bringing up Ray Bradbury because that was I had probably read Martian Chronicles and Illustrated Man at that point because those were pretty easy reads. They're both short fiction, short story um, collections of his. And uh, I, I think I think at, at as a teenager, I read those two and Fahrenheit 451. But um, he's one of my favorite authors, and this guy was just kind of like, oh, that's cute, or something. Like, he was basically in a nice way saying that that's not real sci-fi or that he had different tastes in sci-fi. Um, but uh, I was looking at the something recently, and it was talking about how Philip K. Dick is becoming very influential in the genre. Lovecraft, obviously, we've talked about, is very influential right now. And so Bradbury has very didactic social commentary. Um, he has uh, some kind of O. Henry stuff. There's that one story that I'm sure would not go well now where the guy falls in love with a woman over the phone because he, they're the two last people on Earth. Oh, and I remember that one. He meets her and then she's ugly and so he yeah. runs away. I so mad, it's like, I was mad about that one. Yeah, it's not a very, it's not, that does not age well as a story. No. You could get away with that back then, but it's not the type of thing that you, you know, um, I'm very proud of like, you know, it's like I, and it's funny because I, I liked his stuff because it was all socially conscious. So uh, contrasted to that, that story was just like, this is a random, like, like it, it seemed like something he wrote just to like get a paycheck or something yeah. from a sci-fi magazine. <laughs> and then uh, later on, he might've re regretted, um, but now we, we got the uh, Fahrenheit 451. Like, I, I knew that eventually, because of how everything was being rebooted, something was going to come along that would show um, his thing. And I don't think that that necessarily got a lot of praise, but I really liked that adaptation. And um, I'm hoping that he continues to, you know, resurface and that people get his attention. But I've also been, like, posting about him on like Instagram and Twitter. And it doesn't seem like many people know what I'm talking about. Um, but I, I know he's like respected, but it just seemingly his he's stuff not is as not influ as influential as other as major authors. Um, so that's my number two. All right. So my next one is, I kind of put a general category of fan fiction, mm -hmm. but I'm going to zero in on oh, my, my generation hate, like there's so much people, there's like, there are people that I know that like it and, and won't say anything bad about it, but generally commentary online is to crap all over it and say that none of it is worth it's, but, now it's and become then, a meme. It's, now and then it gets elevated to actual good stuff, and I'm going to pick Sherlock Holmes. Like Fifty Shades of Grey. No. I think that. that was the major thing. Probably. That was probably. And that's justified. I can understand that. I think that in Twilight, I think, was what started making it a laughing, a laughing yeah. stock in the but the, um, the general conversation. Sherlock Holmes has a whole slew of actually published fiction that is extra canonical. So st not stuff written by Doyle, mm -hmm. stuff that was written later. And some of it I hated, and some of it was really good. Mm. So there was a mystery author called Carol Nelson Douglas who did a series called Goodnight, Mr. Holmes. And it was um, Irene Adler who was <clears throat> his nemesis in... A Scandal in Bohemia. It's one of the stories from right. the actual canon. But it's the story from her point of view. 
but it's not her telling the story. She has a friend who's kind of like Watson is to Holmes right. who's telling you the story. And it's one of the only ones I think that actually felt Victorian. Mm. Like a lot of people write them and it doesn't feel like it's set in the same yeah. time. Feels like somebody's going to get instant message. Yeah. Like it's, or... it's weird, but she did a really good job of staying in the time mm. of, of making them really good characters of making a really good version of the story and having homes show up periodically. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was neat. Um, another really good one was, um, I think it's just called Mr. Holmes that they made the movie recently with Ian McKellen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Holmes older right. and his memory starting to go, which for Sherlock Holmes to be losing his mind is a big deal because it's his mm-hmm. pride. Right. And uh, I think it was really well done. It's sad, uh-huh. but it, it's really well written. That, that's been a big discussion among movie fans because there, there was the thing of like, because there's such a, um, it's so uh, financially viable or, or like somebody being hired to work on something does not necessarily mean that they're fans of that thing. Yeah. And so the discussion becomes, do you have to be a fan in order to understand the, the content of it? Because, hey, somebody could start doing it and not be a fan and be learn. What, right, right. What the thing is, what makes that story work? Um, yeah, but that's then possible. There's already to be a rabid fan to, to understand uh-huh. why other people are fans. Right, but then there's argument. There's an argument in terms of like you see a bad movie made, maybe like say like the Wolverine origins movies, and you you think like well, if there was somebody that understood what makes X-Men cool or whatever. Then yeah. That there wouldn't have been a... Because there was another series I tried to read that was, I can't remember the name of the first one, but something to do with bees. And then the second one was... Wonder Man. You no. know, talking about how good the... No. She's going to defend no. that movie. Not ever. <laughs> no. The second one, I think, was a monstrous regiment of women, but I forget what the first one was called. That one read more like regular fan fiction to me. Because there's fan fiction that's done well, and then there's fan fiction that is... This is my fantasy with uh-huh. <laughs> X character. Yeah. And so it was another one where Holmes was older, but she was the main character was like in love with him. Uh-huh. And it was just, I'm like, what are you doing? This is so weird. You're <laughs> killing me. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, it, the, it's been an interesting um, thing to see how, um, how that's taken by, because like I was saying that, it's become kind of like a pejorative thing. Um, but especially now that, that social media is so big, um, you see people do like, uh, I just saw a, an artist, um, that does, um, his style is a lot like the, uh, the, there's a studio, Studio Ghibli, uh, by a, a man named Hayao Miyazaki, uh, who did the to- Totoro, movies uh that's one of one of the of his movies that i'm a big fan of but it's a very specific art style to house style that his studio has and um i i don't even think that he has worked for them because i i went on his twitter and it doesn't seem like he he knows that in his um bio uh but his stuff is a lot like that and he, so he did a uh like a studio ghibli version of like star wars um thing that was really cool um and through that, I was able to see his original stuff, and 
like I'm really hoping that he like makes it big as like a key like he did a did like keyframe animation, so almost like comics but without the words. Mm-hmm. Uh and he's an amazing artist, so to to judge someone just because they have this attachment to this certain franchise or or um you know, even if they do have something that's like cringy because it's so obsessive and ignores the the intricacies and the nuances of what makes that thing its its, its own thing. Um, you know, some people are out there and they want to practice telling stories, and sometimes their only way to do that is to go with something that they already like. Heck, I I started writing by writing fan fiction of Link, the Ocarina. Right. You know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It. It's just for fun, you know. Yeah. But um, then some people can hit on some really good stuff that way. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so the uh, during my English class in, in high school, we had to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it became like a, a full uh, debate about religion. <laughs> and this is in the in the time of um, outrage that we that we live in now it's been difficult in literature classes to have literature be separate from discussions of religion and, and politics and have it exist as just like the, the um, benefits or the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, whether the literature works and what it's doing or it doesn't. Um, and so I remember there being a lot of uh, outrage about um, the the um, type of rhetoric that's in that that sermon, um, and <clears throat> obviously, we, like uh, me and my sister are been raised in church and have a little bit more of a context of the ch- church history and how um, different movements throughout the church have led to different types of um, things being used in, in sermons. Um, and But it was uh, enlightening as it was my first real experience with um, people that, uh, well, well uh, you know, you really have to put it in on uh, the teachers because, you know, a, a, a child is just going to react in, you know, in, in visceral ways to something because they're not uh, aware of the context unless the teacher's going to give them uh, that. Um, and so it, it, it's, um, it's been something that like uh, I've been listening to a lot of um, John Piper's um, uh, he has a, a series where he takes Bible verses apart, really talks about the structure of what's happening within a, a verse. And so it seems like now we get a lot more of that um, for people that uh, want to know what's happening within a, a certain book of the Bible or, uh, you know, there's, there's certain religious ideas that are happening. Um, you can go online and get that and see more of what a specific verse is trying to do. Or if you want to understand it better, we now have the resources to uh, do that. So I think the moral of the story with uh, religious criticism is, or that's the thing is that it, it became religious criticism. You know, it became a like debate about God 
rather than a debate about the literature you were reading. The literature that we were reading. Yeah. So yeah, that was my number three. All right. How many did you have left? I have I have two more. Oh, okay. I don't know how well the other two of them work. My first foray into comic books fell flat fairly quickly because the comics, <laughs> the company that was making the comics I was reading disappeared off the face of the earth. Oh I yeah, about. Totally about I was reading cross gen comics, right? Is that what they were called? Yeah, yeah, and I think I know that Marvel at some time owned them. Okay. Um. But they had their own. They had all of them had the same universe. Uh huh. Yeah, it was all. I it mean, was there all was different universe. worlds, but it was a multiverse. Right. That all was tied together, which I thought was a really cool idea. Uh huh. I didn't read all of them, but my favorite one was Ruse, uh-huh. which was like a Victorian setting, right? With real gargoyles, which was cool. Mm-hmm. They were just like randomly flapping around in the background. <laughs> um, the apocalypse now <clears throat> of. Yeah. Instead of helicopters. I also like there was a fantasy setting one with a archer chick or with a fighter chick and she her friend was this one eyed archer guy. Mm. I don't remember what that one was called. Uh-huh. But anyway, it was a neat thing. And it all had to do with like it all tied into Atlantis and there were people from Atlantis in each of the other comics. Uh-huh. And I had a feeling it was moving towards some really cool epic ending. But right. then it like disappeared. Uh-huh. I was really bummed. Uh-huh. But anyway, at the time, also, I was in a very strict school, and we were not supposed to have such things. Uh huh. So I used to get fussed at for reading them. Was there... <clears throat> that, I didn't know that that problem existed in your yes. campus. So... Um, yeah, that, for those of you who don't know, it in, got squashed in the 90s, very quickly. Uh, there was this thing called the Satanic Panic. Because... People that didn't know anything about fantasy who were religious uh, assumed that if there was magic involved in And it wasn't Tolkien. If it wasn't Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, it was all satanic. Uh Uh-huh. Pretty much. Yeah, so I I don't... It didn't touch me as much because uh, Harry Potter was really the only... I wasn't really... It it didn't interest me very much. So I didn't get any in any of those conversations. And the school... The school that I went to growing up, that was parochial, was didn't really involve itself in what kind of stuff that we had, at least that I knew of. Um, I was never like told not to read comics, and I didn't really start reading comics anyway until uh, I was in high school. Um, but uh, it was a big thing, and, and people looking back on like uh, I, me starting to see criticism from the eyes of people that grew up in the eighties. Uh, they really dealt with that with D and and um, like the different the high fantasy stuff and like people that like Buffy and all right. that stuff um, that went to certain schools <laughs> uh, had that. So I think that that's a good perspective for uh, our fans out there that are not uh, that are in the atheist or the agnostic communities. Um, that when you have uh, a religious, um, whether it's like an institution. Or, uh, you know, you start having protests for stuff like Harry Potter, you know, readings and whatnot. Like, we, we also agree that, like, that religion should not censor um, what what is available just because there are people that are offended by a certain thing. First of all, most of the people are hypocrites and don't know what is in right. the they content. They don't know what's in it anyway. Um, <clears throat> and, and in terms of, like, there being objectionable content, anything, 
I think most of the, like the opinion of you guys really helped me think about this because Gabe, uh, AKA Michael Hulick went to, uh, his son's school to talk about video games. And he didn't even think about how these parents, how little the parents know about games because he assumed people, everybody was nerdy like him and they grew up with it like he did. And back in the eighties, it wasn't like that. You got bullied for liking video games and stuff. So, um, he started advocating very seriously from that point on to educate people about this stuff because rather than tell your kid, I don't want you to play Grand Theft Auto, sit with your child and play this or that game and have conversations with them about why, right, about what's in it, what is appropriate, what, what is not. What do you think is right, what do you think is not, and, let's think or about Or like he, he, he brought up stuff like in <clears throat> his son playing Minecraft and how like he blew up his friend's place and he told him that's not good sportsmanship. So even if something looks like it's a childish game, you don't know yeah, whether your child, your child behaving is behaving well, appropriately that, yeah. in this type of environment. So you can actually teach them <clears throat> through these things that um, you may or may not be writing off as. This is a childish adventure saying. Um, so yeah, so that that's... Well, uh, like, so the big thing I got upset about regarding that was people were all gung-ho against Harry Potter. Uh-huh. No one said anything about the Golden Compass series. Which literally, at the end of that series, they kill God. Yeah. Like, so if you want to discuss one that might be offensive and that uh-huh. may be purposely written against Christianity, how about you look at the one where the guy said he set out to write the Anti Chronicles of Narnia and leave the poor Harry Potter people alone? Uh-huh. Like, Harry Potter was just supposed to be a fun coming of age mm-hmm. fantasy story, not. Yeah, <clears throat> it's interesting because the, uh, <clears throat> shout out again to Stripler Relit. I've been immersed in your channel for the past couple uh, months now. And they've been going through Harry Potter for a while. And Adrian has this kind of interesting opinion because of how J.K. Rowling has positioned herself as a bastion of social justice. So it's been fun for him to kind of tear down Harry Potter because, you know, uh, uh, you can actually read in a lack of diversity if you really look at, like, what characters are literally told to you as a certain thing. And then there's a place where, like, the centaurs carry this woman off, and it's not well-defined what they what do to her. What is going on? Um, so, <laughs> like, he's just like, is this really, if this person is selling herself as, like, <sighs> I am what you should look as an example of well-written and, and progressive thinking, and then they, that's what they put in their book. Uh, but, that's a funny example of the opposite of toxic fandom. Like, <laughs> I think her fandom did that. I don't think she intended it necessarily in her original writings, but her fandom made that an inclusive thing. Uh-huh, right. Because being able to pick one of those houses... Right, even that, if I think like, literally if you look at it, it <clears throat> happened where that became it became such that people were discussing more topics and then she grew as a writer after writing or as, as a individual... Because like, I would say the stuff like the Fantastic Beast stuff that she's doing is more social justice than the original Harry Potter series was. Mm-hmm. So right. like it's becoming that, but I think the fandom well, you can't, more than you can't go back and change what you wrote no. once you start thinking that way. Right. So, um, but she, but all that to say that the, um, there are certain things that he picked up on where like, for example, the Voldemort comes back to life. And so there's something of a resurrection there. And then he has a, there is a Peter that, um, 
is like his right hand person. So like you could definitely see like there's references, and if there was uh, uh, say like a priest that's specifically uh, nefarious and like trying to be like uh, looking for stuff that's like satanic, right? They could look at something and see how there might be commentary that an adult would pick up on if they were reading a certain thing. Um, but like, I don't think it's necessarily purposely trying to get at anything, but, uh, it, it's just been interesting seeing him read this series as an adult and look at whether it's living up to the type of personality that she's trying to market herself in now. Um, but like a lot of what, what I say about that whole movement and like, like trying to say that frozen is has gay subtext and stuff is that your 10 year old will only understand what you tell them. <laughs> and so if you start telling them that this is wrong, it's only going to entice them to seek out more things to be, because being naughty is fun. Like to, doing the thing that your parent right. wants you to do is not cool. Unless you actually treat them with respect and say like, listen, I know that you like this thing, uh, but l- let's talk about what's good about it. And let's talk about what, uh, like the, the things in this that concern you and ask whether your child even gets that because 99% of the time they're not reading into the, um, like the nihilistic subtext of, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame or something like they they don't understand what you're, what you're, because, uh, I I know Jordan Peterson was talking about how back in the eighties, another big thing that happened was, um, there were a bunch of, uh, mothers that were starting to go to work for the first time. And there were daycares that were opening up and it was becoming a big thing. You just drop your kid off. And then there was some case where um, a a child was complaining about something very innocuous. And then the mother started thinking like, oh, no, is somebody hurting my kid? And then they they tell the kid, oh, so what happened? And the kid wants to tell you something that you want to hear. So they come up with another story. And then the kid starts having nightmares about being hurt and being kept in like a dungeon somewhere. And then all these people actually got arrested and they invented some term that was like late onset, uh, female sexual predators. And it was like, I wonder why this thing just psychologically started happening because it was just something that people made up. And so I think that that syndrome to a lesser extent exists in, um, authority figures where they start seeing things that aren't there. Um, like, the, and this isn't an isolated thing that there was a guy that was saying he was watching a Scooby-Doo cartoon and he thought that God was talking to him and saying that, uh, Scooby-Doo and, uh, Conan the Barbarian and these things were evil and that we, he should start on this crusade against them. It's, it's a real psychological problem <laughs> that affects people where they want to protect their kids and they start inventing things that are a problem with it rather than just having a conversation with the kid about what they're learning about and about what they're actually taking from this thing. Right. Right. Um, so I think that there's, there's uh, 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 something that can be tempered about that uh, in, in the, that I think it's happening since we have, more access to, you know, information about these things. Like, and I think that because of a lot of panic, there has been a lot of, um, 
making certain things a little bit more kid friendly. You might think that that might be a reason why, um, you know, Thundercats is more chibi now. So that it's like <laughs> nobody's concerned that there's going to be like weird demon things in our cartoons. Um, but anyway, to, to, to stop from ranting, um, it's funny because uh, I was going to talk about John Green and that came up in Cobra Kai recently where the, the guy takes the girl to this, this tragic love story because really it's like, it, it's interesting when you don't read the books to see it as like a lot of the stories are very, um, they're very melodramatic. So it is very easy for, um, you know, young girls to get into and for, um, uh, 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 the males that look at it, the scoff at it is just like, this is just sentimental crap for, for preaching girls. Um, but one thing that is interesting since it is a man writing the series, he uses this, these like teen love stories to talk about how as a teenage boy, you have to, it's a rite of passage to go from a girl, girls are the apex of God's creation <laughs> to I'm, I'm conflating another human being with the divine yeah. <laughs> in a way that like, I need to temper, like, you know, to understand that this is another complex human being. And pretty much all of his books, ever since Looking for Alaska, um, it, that that was um, interesting because it, it the way it does it is that this guy falls in love with this girl at a boarding school, and then she commits suicide. And so he doesn't, he didn't even, like, there was nothing from their relationship for him to understand that there was this complex depression that she was going through and so he blames himself a lot for not getting that but then he learns to forgive himself because he was it was his first love and you know all this stuff so um there is a there is a little bit like and like any genre it's it's adapting and it's growing and you know even though it, it might seem like all these uh you know YA things are very melodramatic and stuff like I think the genre is improving and they're learning to adapt and find which things are. Except, you know, in the dystopia area where it has been just degrading. <laughs> but like, we're, we're looking at Hollywood Sierra version previous, of that. Uh, I mean, I, I, I haven't read as many of the books oh, as you. Uh, I haven't read Darkest Mind yet, so I shouldn't yeah. judge. Um, but the, yeah, the, the movies are definitely just like, let's cash in on yeah. <laughs> this thing and get the things from this that everybody seems to like. Um, but I think I think John Green deserves the uh, praise that he has gotten um, for making the contribution that he has done, and that people looking back on it like they look back on, um, you know, Kipling and, and mock him for the or or look at him with like today's mindset. You you should look back on that and see what he was able to introduce in the conversation he was able to start in young adult without um you know faulting him for having similar tropes in every thing that he writes and everything like that um all right so you said you have one, one more just one more after this all right so i will put in this one even though it's very ridiculous and i don't even know where to start with it so everybody loves nathan fillion and if you don't shame on you but nathan fillion was in a show called castle where he played a writer Mm -hmm. who was following a cop around. 
it's a ridiculous premise because I'm pretty I sure mean, cops it, don't let random people follow them around. Like that, that that got me just because I I loved um, Serenity and and. Uh, well, that's what I'm assuming they were banking on with. I came into that backwards because I saw Serenity first, and then I oh, and then watched. The, the but I think I, I started watching Castle after that, and then after a while, got into Firefly. Um, but yeah, he's he's a good actor. He's the the comedy in that was uh, just elevated, it was good. It was elevated fun. by the fact that he was, you know, if you're charmed by him, then you're gonna like. Uh, that, that character in that series. But anyway, they actually published books <laughs> by Richard Castle. Oh, yeah, the, we're going, fictional yeah. fictional author. <laughs> no, we're going worse than this. We're going deep. Liking Castle's not that horrible. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's it's a little weird, but it's not that horrible. Liking Richard Castle, this fictional character's novels <laughs> that have gotten published <laughs> is a bit ridiculous. Um, yeah, it's it was fun. It wasn't like some great amazing mystery or anything. I don't even remember half of what happened. I do remember that there was a set of detectives in there named Malcolm and Reynolds, which I thought was funny uh-huh. as a callback to his character on Firefly. Um, but just the idea that they would publish stuff by a fictional person uh-huh. cracks me up. So I read the novel, read the first one, and I might get more as I see fit. But that's funny because it kind of strikes on, like, you... I would think as readers as we are, it's kind of like there were two levels of fandom to that because yeah. the show was just a procedural and if you just liked um, Nathan Fillion or you liked the writing or, or what have you, then that's kind of one level. But then if you're a reader, you get all the funny kind of in-joke things about like what detective novels are like or like there was a rear window episode there was the episode where they go to a convention right and he, he's wearing a brown coat yeah it uh, was thing. great um so yeah so that's that's a funny that's a good pick <laughs> because i also i like that show and i we listened to part of that series together i think um yeah, that's and so my last thing is kind of similar because uh dresden is a book. Oh, that's as, actually both of our choices for this next one. So that's yeah, funny. Yeah, because that, like, reading Dresden, I think you, the the humor comes from knowing fantasy stuff, and his takes on those things. Um, it's a, it's a, a urban fantasy, like noir mix, um, and uh, also he's kind of like a blue collar. It's kind of like what I thought was cool about the uh, beginning of the Spider-Man series, because, um, uh, and I, and I have a friend, uh, Joshua Warren, who lives in Taiwan, who is a big fan of Steve Ditko. And I think a lot of the idiosyncratic stuff from the early Spider-Man come from the artist that was on it. In addition to Stanley's humor, I think he's what Stanley is the reason why it was funny. I think <laughs> Ditko really, he, he was a serious Randian follower and, he was all about the individual against the corporate uh. and stuff. But there's a lot of this, like, this is a superhero who worries about paying his bills right. and worries about his sick aunt yeah. and stuff like that. And so the idea that a lot of, a lot of the humor from the beginning of Stormfront, which is what I'm reading right now, it comes from the fact that, like, it's a wizard that has to pay the bills. Right. And it's like the private eye wizard who 
is doing he's down this. on his luck and he's got to do what he's got to do. And he's like a, an enemy to technology and um, he has to, like the different fantasy stuff are broken down almost like like the different factions that you would see in a larger form um, detective thing where like, you know, certain parts of the underworld are controlled by vampires and then the stool pigeon that he catches right, is right. like a fairy not like a fairy, it is it's a fairy. A fairy. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, like, there are these there are these things that are written for fans of a genre to uh, be a mirror into themselves and to show you, like, what's ridiculous about certain things yeah. about it. Um, he does but, get more serious later on in the series, uh-huh. but most of the beginning and a lot of the short stories are all very light like that mm-hmm. and just snarky fun. Right. Um uh, you like you have to get far enough in, or maybe you want to skip ahead to a book where Odin shows up because that's just too fun. <laughs> um, and the Valkyrie, because why not? But like every kind of random fantasy, anything that you can think of, uh-huh. puts into these books. So. And I think that I think um, <clears throat> Gaiman is another author like that. Yeah, um, Pratchett. Well, Gaiman, I, I think, think it's considered more literary. I think there's specific. I I think there are authors that dip toes in both things. Yeah. I I, I, it seems like um, Butcher is very much like just because of the volume of Dresden stuff out there, you would think that it's more like pulpy than Gaiman, who who has different things. But like like American Gods seems like a very black humorous thing where he talks about like he it's his take on mythology. Um, There's. Oh, this like Stardust right. is is kind of more on that thing. Um, at uh, what's her name? Um, Lindsay Ellis did as the series called um, uh, Loose Cannon, where she talks about each iteration of a certain archetype, and one of them was Death. And she talked about how Terry Pratchett does Death. Oh yeah, yeah. And his Discworld read, series. I haven't read that. And one it's yet. very much like it's the the it's that trope of like he's a character who keeps saying that he doesn't have emotions but consistently like is like this really sweet character <laughs> to a number of, of different types of people um i need to read more terry pratchett yeah i i haven't read any of them yet but the that, one that was suggested to me was the monsters regiment i think oh is that um, like a take on i would say like uh is it like monster hunting or is it monster no no they are monsters oh okay hey <laughs> Like well, like sort of, real monsters, <laughs> yeah, that are stuck together in a regiment. Uh, but Terry Pratchett's just funny, uh-huh. so cleverly funny. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's it. I got that from the that there there were excerpts that she showed from different adaptations of Discworld. Um, so yeah, so I I think what I'm going to close on is an idea that I I forget where I heard it. Um, I, I, it might have been from somebody on the co-optional podcast to set another reference to Total Biscuit who I mentioned earlier but um, and I put this on our Twitch I said uh, criticize ideas not people and it seems like because of the amount of information out there and people's um, gluttonous kind of like thing of like oh I own I, I now own this thing because I understand it better than somebody else you start getting to the point where you're like, oh, you're that type of fan. You like this type of thing. You are less than human now. Yeah. And it's like, it's sad that, but because of, it used to be where, you know, you could forgive 
a dumb joke because they didn't know enough to <laughs> criticize what you think. Now people know too much and they get a little bit uh, elitist about their opinions. And um, it, it's a good thing that we have. You can find people that like what you do and, uh, you know, you, you can celebrate something for what it is. Um, but hopefully we can move together as fans and uh, we definitely want this community to be built on liking things and not being ashamed of it um, and being less guilty about your pleasures <laughs> uh, and the things that you are nerdy about. So thank you uh, for listening. Uh, if you want to write into us, you can reach us at unboxingstorypodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also tweet us at Unboxing Story, and our Facebook page is also uh, Unboxing Story. Uh, and if you want to uh, contribute to our Patreon, we're at patreon.com slash thinkoutsidethebox, and you can uh, vote on future episodes, and um, you can also tons, access... Tons of content. Yeah, we have uh, a month of uh, content up now. Uh, Melissa just premiered her... Iron Sorcerer um, serial novel, the first episode. Uh, You want to tell everybody a little bit more about that? So uh, the Iron Sorcerer is a woman who is uh, sent on a quest to find the former Iron Champion of her town. She works for dragons, and uh, there are other gargantuan creatures that inhabit this land that are ruling different parts of the land. So there are dragons, giants, rocks, and krakens. And she is uh, venturing into giant territory to get back the thing that the former Iron Champion was supposed to get and has buddied up with a dragonborn who is Trax, who is very different than her. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is them on their adventures as they... If I can boast on you a little bit. I like the... Because uh, I've been trying to think about different ways to... Uh, you know, make sure people know about it and, and kind of uh, get into it a little bit um, in, in the Twitters and uh, all the different places we are. And I was thinking maybe like fantasy noir is a, a way to talk about it. Um, but I, I think the best fiction is stuff that focuses on the characters and nails down a voice. And I think that you have a really good voice that uh, transcends the genre. It doesn't feel like priest or underworld or any of these things that I make fun of so much. <laughs> it, it feels like its own thing and I'm hyped to read more. Thank you. Um, and uh, you can also get um, access to the random media mini cast, which we talk about random things. We'll be talking about 2001 and uh, girls just want to have fun. Because <laughs> so the one episode we forgot time. about and the other one we tried to record and we had technical difficulties. So, uh, You'll see that episode pretty soon. Um, and all sorts of good uh, speed art videos and uh, different things from our brain to help create a community that is um, uh, enthusiastic about fantasy and sci-fi and all the um, different storytelling that we like. So uh, thanks again, and we'll talk to you later. Bye.